I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hi, John. How are you today? I'm hanging in there okay. How about you? I am all right. It is uh, very hot here in Boulder today. It is 98 degrees, which is uh, higher than usual, but it's okay. Uh, We're recording here today on a Saturday. Uh, Tuesday, we're supposed to get eight inches of snow. I, wow. Um, That's, that's terrifying and hilarious at the same time. That's that's 2020. Like right there, you have described 2020 so far. Yeah, it should be great. It's going to be fascinating times here to go from 98, I can barely go outside because it's so hot, to theoretically, I won't be able to walk to my car. So, John, what show are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about She Loves Me. Music by Jerry Bach. Lyric by Sheldon Harnick. Book by Joe Masteroff. Based on the play, Parfumery by Miklos Laszlo. She Loves Me opened on April 23rd in 1963 at the Eugene O'Neill Theater and closed on January 11th of 1964, having played for 301 performances. She Loves Me was directed by Harold Prince and music directed by Harold Hastings. The musical staging was by Carol Haney. The original cast included Barbara Cook as Amalia Balash, Daniel Massey as George Nowak, Barbara Baxley as Ilona Ritter, Jack Cassidy as Stephen Kadai, Ludwig Donath as Zoltan Maracek, and Nathaniel Frey as Ladislav Sipos. She Loves Me was nominated for five Tony Awards and won a single award, Best Featured Actor. Act One opens in 1934 as the employees of Maracek's perfumery arrive to start the day. We are introduced to Ladislav Sipos, a middle-aged salesman, teenage delivery boy Arpad Laszlo, Stephen Kadai, and Ilona Ritter, who are having an amorous relationship, and George Nowak, the shy assistant manager. Soon, Zoltan Maracek, the owner, arrives and the workday begins. We find out that George has been exchanging letters and fostering a relationship with a woman he knows only as dear friend. He discusses the latest letter with Ladislav, but Mr. Marichek overhears and tells George to settle down and get married at his earliest opportunity. Arpod is stocking the shelves with a new cigarette case that plays music when opened. Mr. Marichek, who loves the new cases, exclaims that they will sell one within the hour. George is skeptical about the boxes. Then Amalia Balish enters the store looking for a job. George tells her that they are not hiring, but Amalia insists on speaking to the owner. While Mr. Marichek looks on, Amalia grabs one of the cigarette cases and sells it to a customer by convincing them it's really a candy box that plays music when open to tell the person no more candy. Impressed, Marichek hires Amalia on the spot. 
time passes. We see summer change to fall, and then the chill of early winter approaches. The frostiness outside is mirrored in the shop. Stephen and Alona are arguing. Mr. Marichek is getting increasingly frustrated with George, who is constantly bickering with Amalia. Unbeknownst to each other, they are the two exchanging the romantic missives. Taking solace in their letters, the two dear friends agree to meet in person. Sometime later, Mr. Marichek is yelling at George once more for a minor offense. And this time, it looks like Marichek is finally going to fire his beleaguered assistant manager. Before he can do so, Ladislav knocks over a pile of the cigarette cases, distracting Marichek and causing him to storm off. He soon returns and announces that everyone must stay late to decorate for Christmas. Amalia is able to beg out of working because she has a date, but George, who has the same date, must stay. Marichek starts to pick on George again, and furious, George quits and leaves while everyone else sings their goodbyes. Stephen is flirting with Alona, but when Mr. Marichek decides to close down early, Stephen realizes that he can keep his 9.30 dinner date after all and pushes Alona away. Outside of the shop, George meets up with Ladislav and tells the salesman of his nervousness about meeting his dear friend. All the workers have left the shop, leaving Mr. Marichek alone. A private investigator arrives and tells Marichek that his wife is having an affair with Stephen. Marichek is shocked. He thought that the scoundrel was George, which explains his anger with his assistant manager. Despondent, he puts a gun to his head and pulls the trigger as Arpod walks back in from a delivery. Meanwhile, Amalia is sitting at a cafe waiting for her unnamed date. With her, she has a copy of Anna Karenina and a rose so that her dear friend can recognize her. George and Ladislav arrive, and upon seeing the book and the flower, George realizes that Amalia is his secret paramour. Sitting down at the table, George mocks Amalia, singing about a woman who was killed on a blind date. They argue, and George leaves. Act one ends with Amalia sitting in the cafe alone, hoping that her dear friend will not abandon her, not realizing that George was the secret pen pal all along. Act two opens with Arpod and George visiting Mr. Marichek in the hospital. He has survived his suicide attempt. Marichek is incredibly apologetic to George and begs him to take his old job back. When George accepts, Marichek tells him that his first order of business is to fire Stephen Kadai. He also mentions that Amalia has called in sick. Worried about Amalia, George heads to her apartment. Answering the door, Amalia feels that George is really there to spy on her, so she starts getting dressed to go into work. Seeing that she is really sick, he sends her back to bed and reveals a peace offering, vanilla ice cream. He apologizes for his rudeness the night before, but Amalia responds that he wasn't too far off the mark. Her dear friend never bothered showing up, so he must not really love her after all. George tries to comfort her by telling her that he saw an old, fat, balding man looking into the cafe while he was there, and that the mysterious man told George that he could not meet his date within because he had to work late. He leaves, and Amalia starts to write to her dear friend, but cannot get George and his gift out of her mind. Outside, George realizes that Amalia is in love with him. She just doesn't know it yet. Back at the shop, Stephen is fired and bids everyone farewell. 
Ilona, who has broken things off with Stephen, talks about the optometrist she has met at the library. Time passes once more as we go through the last 12 days before Christmas, a hectic time of helping customers, wrapping presents, and general disarray. It is now Christmas Eve, and Mr. Marichek has returned. The group talks of their plans. Alona is going to accept her optometrist proposal, even if he doesn't know he's proposing yet. Ladislav is going to celebrate with his family, and Mr. Marichek takes Arpad out for a night on the town. Amalia and George are left. She tells George that she's invited her dear friend to celebrate Christmas with her and her mother. Then she asks George to join them as well, and he hesitatingly accepts. She starts to leave, but not before picking up one of the cigarette cases, stating that her dear friend would like the gift. She accidentally drops it, and George mentions that he would like one as well, to remember the day they first met. He then admits that Amalia is a woman he could see himself falling in love with. Before she can walk out of the store, George takes one of her dear friend letters out of his pocket and starts to read it aloud. Amalia finally realizes that George has been her dear friend all along, and the two embrace. So this is one of those shows that probably has a familiar storyline for people. Um, The Parfumery has been commonly adapted. Um, It was a Jimmy Stewart movie, A Shop Around the Corner, and it was also the Tom Hanks movie, You've Got Mail. So if the story seems familiar to you, that might be part of the reason. A Shop Around the Corner actually ended up as number 28 on the AFI's top 100 list of movies in the 20th century. So definitely some quality material that produces some real quality work. Um, It's funny as we prepare for stuff like this, when we look at uh, various awards the shows have won, and there's a funny little piece of trivia when it comes to She Loves Me. So the show premiered in 1963 and was revived in 1994 and 2016. So as we mentioned before, in 1963, it was nominated for five awards. In 1994, it was actually nominated for nine. And in 2016, it was nominated for eight. And each time, it won a single award. And I know in reality that doesn't mean anything, but it's a great little piece of trivia for this show that it's recognized as quality enough to be nominated, but each time it's good for one award. So it's consistent in that regard. Well, and it's, you know, this is a really, really nice show. It provides an opportunity for fantastic performances. It creates an opportunity for amazing sets and lighting and costume, but there's nothing super revolutionary or edgy, or there's not really anything in the material that's going to stand out necessarily other than it just being a very enjoyable and well put together story. And it's funny because that story at the end of the day is pretty straightforward man meets woman who he's secretly corresponding with that he doesn't know they fall in love they fight they make up and then they kind of live happily ever after one of the things about this show that i've always found interesting is there's so much window dressing with so many for lack of a better term b plots um you have the concept of 
Stephen Kodai having this illicit, not necessarily affair, but relationship with Ilona, in addition to having an affair, an actual affair, with Marichek's wife. And then you have Sipos and his, his constant devotion to family and kind of clinging to it as a lifeboat. It just feels like some of this is window dressing. I don't know. What do you think? So uh, for me, uh, Sipos talking about his family a lot. I don't even know that it's enough to call a B plot. It's just sort of like, this is kind of all the character Sipos has is his job, his rules about keeping his job and then his family life, which he's clearly very devoted to, but is just sort of, that's, that's all he has to talk about when he has something to say. Um, the stuff between Kodai and Marichek's wife, I think it's really interesting the way it's laid out because it's almost just kind of hinted at throughout the show in a way where you notice that it's happening. It is substantive enough for it to be a B plot, but you don't realize how integral it is to George's storyline until it's finally revealed at the end of act one that Kodai is the one who is having an affair with Marichek's wife. And that affair is what uh, Mr. Marichek had known about and he thought it was George and that's why he got upset. And all of these things kind of spill out right there in the last five minutes of the first act that then really sets the stage for act two as a way to get rid of Kodai, which leaves room for resolving Alona's story and bringing George back into the shop so that George and Amalia can find a way to spend time together and resolve their failed meeting at the end of act one. So for me, that part of the story is actually really nicely done. The part of these kind of secondary plots that doesn't so much, it makes sense. It just doesn't feel necessary is how Alona's storyline ends. Like for me, if Alona's storyline ended with her, singing her song I Resolve and telling uh, Kodai to, you know, stick it where the sun don't shine, that would have been enough. And the fact that she then goes to a library and meets an optometrist and they fall in love and she decides that they're going to get married, like, okay, that's fine, but it's not really necessary to the story in any way. I wonder if some of it is to make sure that everyone has some sort of happy ending for lack of a better term. So end of the show, Marichek is alive and his happy ending is that he comes back to work and, you know, he's starting to kind of rebuild his life. Um, George and Amalia obviously end up together. Uh, Sipos has his family, which is that kind of through plot that goes through his entire reason for living. You've even got Arped, the delivery boy, who's ultimately elevated to this like salesman figure. In Yeah, he gets promoted to a clerk, more or less. Still doing deliveries, but also a clerk. And so I wonder if Alona's plot wrapping up in this way isn't so much to tie up a storyline that may or may not need tying up, but to give her a happy ending. She find you know, she finds love and she finds love enough that she's gonna get married. Whether the optometrist knows it or not is almost irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's just sort of an older convention that everyone needs to have a happy ending that maybe I don't think is necessary anymore, but is absolutely appropriate for 1963. 
one of the things I know that we both agree on is the use of the music in this show and how it just presents this, I don't know, this charming feeling, this feeling almost of elegance. Yeah, so, I mean, Bach and Harnick, one of the great writing duos of musical theater. I mean, Fiorello, The Apple Tree, Fiddler on the Roof, you know their music, even if you don't necessarily know their names. And She Loves Me is no different. It is just great musical theater theater writing. Some of the songs are just absolutely wonderful standalone hits, like Dear Friend, Vanilla Ice Cream, She Loves Me, Days Gone By, just fantastic songs. But there's also really, really great narrative storytelling songs like uh, Sounds While Selling early on when we're introduced to the store and the concept of the perfumery. There's a song where uh, the clerks are selling things to different customers and it's woven together in this almost nonsense sentence form of song structure that is just a really clever way of showing life around a shop. Well, and you mentioned uh, 12 Days of Christmas. I was actually very fortunate this past year to help um, probably one of my closest theater friends put together a little Christmas review for a fundraiser for a theater. And we actually used 12 Days of Christmas not having music directed She Loves Me before. I was struck as we're going through this song in how intricate the construction is and how things seem to turn on a dime. But while it was difficult, the challenge and the, the pleasure from achieving that challenge came in doing the music justice, just because it's so well constructed that you want to get it right just to make it as, for lack of a better term, elegant as possible. And I think elegant is a great word for this show because this show really does have a beautiful, rich, and lush, and elegant score. It's funny that you found that even in 12 Days of Christmas, which is arguably one of the, the more frantic songs, particularly as, it, as, you know, as the song gets closer and closer to Christmas, the tempo gets faster and faster, and things get messed up in the text, and it's, 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 it's really clever and really smart. Um, but there's so much just beautiful writing of, of music and of, of lyrics throughout this this show that, you know, like we've said, it just makes for a really, really enjoyable evening. And I think that musical elegance lends itself to a staging and a setting that is equally elegant and elevated. Uh, I w- have been fortunate enough to musically direct well no i was a conductor for this show the musical director was a a very famous broadway conductor who came into our university did all of the rehearsals and then left before the performances so i came in and and did all the shows but i've I've gotten to conduct the show and i got to see the 2016 revival and the 2016 revival was absolutely beautiful and our revival uh or our production at school of the arts was also just glorious from a from a set costumes lighting they i mean the the students there really just pulled out all the stops to make it a a beautiful show well i think that's one of the big compliments you can pay this show i have i've never music directed this show but i have seen it several times in several different venues it's a show that lends itself to being beautiful 
I don't know if that necessarily makes sense on its surface, but there's something about this show that in order to do it justice, it has to have that visual aesthetic. It has to have that aural aesthetic and it has to have that, you know, that dramatic aesthetic. And every production I've seen has been able to pull that off in some regards. It's not a show that you're necessarily going to see a bunch of cardboard cutouts for and something that they've pulled out of Aunt May's closet to to costume. If you're going to do She Loves Me, you're going to do it with the importance that it deserves. And when you really put the effort in it, you can't help but produce a beautiful show. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, in that regard, it is almost the anti-fantastics because it just, it lends itself so well to being lavish and lush. And it's, you know, it's just fun to be a part of a show that, you know, every day you come to work and you look at the set and you go, wow, this is really, really pretty. I was, it was very cool in the production that I did. Um, it was in a theater that didn't have a pit. So what they did was they built a 10 foot platform at the back of the stage that the entire band was put on. And to kind of obscure us from vision, they made the roof of the perfumery be these like stained glass windows. So there were, I mean, it spanned the entire width of the stage that was kind of like right behind us. So our backdrop was this stained glass that they could then light through. So we were illuminated as shadows behind the stained glass. It was really, I mean, it was, you know, I never got to see it from the audience perspective, but looking at the production pictures, it was really quite lovely. It's nice when you can feature a band on stage like that, but also give it a little bit of that aesthetic kick to just make it that much more elegant. Yeah, and and elegant is exactly the word. And it was also nice just uh, to be able to see the stage from that perspective. Uh, I could just sort of look over my shoulder and be able to see exactly what was going on, which was uh, helpful from time to time. This being a student production, uh, we actually had a performance. There's all of these these little numbers that interject through the show uh, every time a customer leaves the store, they say, uh, thank you, thank you, please come again, please come again, thank you. And that's sung every time and it's preceded by this little chime and it, it's musical and it's cute to the orchestra and they are numbers in the book. Our production gave me a little foot pedal to activate a chime to, for, for the door so that when a customer came into the shop, I would do the foot pedal and the little chime would happen and everybody would know it's time to sing the song. And I'm, I'm looking down and uh, one of the characters is standing next to the door and we know that someone is supposed to enter. And the character just keeps looking up at me out of the corner of their eyes and like as subtly as possible, shaking their head no, because they know that the <laughs> actor who's supposed to enter is not standing behind the door. So I look down and I see behind the door. And I'm like, oh, there's nobody there. So I, that means that we have to skip from this number, the little thank you music, to an actual song. All the actors on stage are like, they've, they've made the adjustment. They're young professionals. They know they're ready to go. All the people in, the, in our pit up on our platform are just sort of like, you know, looking at the light, staring at the ceiling, not aware, like, okay, he's going to hit the chime and then we'll do the next number. So I'm up there like frantically going, number 28 or whatever it was, just like skip to the next number, skip to the next number. And they give us the cue line for the next number and bam, we're in it. <laughs> it was, 
just one of those fun uh, conductor moments from live theater. I've had moments like that as well. In the moment, they're terrifying. And it's like, oh, good God, how are we going to ever survive this? And then you survive it. And it becomes the funniest thing in the world. It's just one of the perks and one of the joys of being a music director for a live production. And then you get to rib that actor who failed to make an entrance over and over endlessly until the production closes, which is also fun. Absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to say about She Loves Me, John? No, I think we've covered it pretty decently. Okay. Well, I'm a big Barbara Cook fan. So I'm going to say, as you're looking for recordings of She Loves Me, go find the original Broadway cast recording. Because while every recording out there is great, that's the only one that has Barbara Cook on it. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.